You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Dr. Greg Hurton, who is an emeritus professor of history at the University of California and was a founding faculty member at the University of California at Merced. He received a PhD in modern American diplomatic history from Princeton University in 1974 and subsequently taught at Oberlin College, Yale University, and California Institute of Technology, Caltech. From 1988 to 2003, Dr. Hurkin was a senior historian and curator, as well as the chairman of the Department of Space History at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum here in Washington, D.C. He is the author of now five books, The Winning Weapon, The Atomic Bomb and the Cold War, Councils of War, Cardinal Choices, Presidential Science Advising from the Atomic Bomb to SDI, The Brotherhood of a Bomb, The Tangled Lives and Loyalties of Robert Oppenheimer, Ernest Lawrence, and Edward Teller, which, by the way, was a finalist for the 2003 Los Angeles Times Book Prize in History. And now he has written the Georgetown set, Friends and Rivals in Cold War Washington, which just came out last week. Dr. Herkin, thank you for taking the time to join us here at the International Spy Museum. Good to be here. So your previous four books before the latest one have focused on nuclear policy and nuclear history, uh, which I appreciated because that's my field. Uh, That's where I came into contact uh, with your writing for the first time. But your new book goes in a very different direction. What what brought you to this topic? Mm Well, when I retired from the University of California about four years ago, I decided that I wanted to write a uh, a history of the Cold War, uh, more broadly than just uh, nuclear history. But uh, really, the Cold War had been a topic I had taught at various places, as you say, for almost 40 years. And I didn't want to write a a policy history, just a, a history based upon documents. I wanted to write about the people who had some impact upon the Cold War. And, uh, and my inspiration or my model was actually a book that I had written about a dozen years ago called uh, Brotherhood of the Bomb, where I wanted to write about nuclear weapons policy, but again, I wanted to focus upon the people who had made the weapons. Uh, that was going to be a book on Edward Teller, and, and uh, it segued really to a book uh, that was going to be on Ernest Lawrence, 
And finally, it became really a book on uh, Robert Oppenheimer, since Oppenheimer was the most fascinating figure, and he really takes over the book. Um, in a similar way, uh, Joe Alsop, the, uh, the columnist, takes over uh, the Georgetown set. And I think that's what's really refreshing about this book, is that a lot of times people have attempted to write books on the Cold War, and they've, they've primarily focused on the heavy hitters, the Eisenhowers, the Trumans, you know, going even into the the secretaries of state or defense and really this brings it down to the personal level and you know these aren't average citizens these are you know these are publishers these are are, are very famous people uh even you know former uh ambassadors like george kennan but it's not the president it's not the people in the white house and it's really looking at people that are making policy but behind the scenes you want to talk a little bit about why you chose these individuals versus the higher-ups. Right. Well, well, as you say, the book is really about the pundits, the publishers, the diplomats, and the spies who happened to live in Washington, and it was uh, uh, a matter of good fortune, at least for this historian, that they all lived within a six-by-eight-block area, uh, and uh, and pretty much they, they got together on a regular basis on Sunday evening in what was a Washington institution, a Georgetown institution, called the Sunday Night Supper. And the suppers rotated between the various uh, houses of the of the people, but uh, primarily uh, between the Alsops, the Wisners, and the Grams. The uh, Joe and Stuart Alsop were the among the premier pundits of the Cold War. They wrote a column called Matter of Fact that was published in at their peak about 200 daily newspapers, four times a week, uh, with a readership of about 25 million. So they were they had an influence upon opinion. Uh, the publisher in this case, or publishers, were uh, Phil and Catherine Graham, owners and publishing publishers of the uh, the Washington Post, which is one of the papers that published the Alsop column. Uh, and the spy is a lesser known figure, uh, Frank Gardner Wisner. Uh, but Frank was head of uh, essentially the Department of Dirty Tricks, uh, covert operations from the very early part of the Cold War. Uh, he was head of the Office of Policy Coordination in the State Department. And OPC was actually, Office of Policy Coordination was a term of art, uh, meant to, to fool Soviet spies, I suppose. But it really was uh, the covert operations arm of the U.S. government. And later, uh, Wisner went on and headed the plans directorate of the CIA. So he was a central figure in this. In fact, actually, the, the coup in, in, uh, uh, in Guatemala, the coup in Iran, uh, had Frank Wisner's fingerprints on it. Uh, so um, so the, the dinners would, would uh, circulate between mostly the Alsops, the Wisners, and the Grams. Uh, Alsops were, Alsops, Joe Alsops uh, salons were probably the most sought after and the most raucous. Uh, uh, and uh, basically there would be about a dozen people at the, um, at the dinners. There would be, uh, besides Joe Alsops' own tribal and good friends like the Grams, uh, there would be uh, senators, congressmen, um, some uh, young leading figure in the new administration who had secrets of state that might be uh, of interest to Joe and his column, um, and people like that. So that these, these suppers would take place, and they were a way for Joe to get information for his column. Uh, they were a way for the Grams to find out things as well that were of interest to their readership. And, and probably also for Frank Wisner to learn secrets because uh, he would invite foreign diplomats to his parties uh, at his house on P Street. And uh, it was said, it was rumored that the house, that the, um, the parties were actually subsidized by the CIA because this is where Frank was able to get some of his information. Well, it might also be a place where Frank Wisner can uh, 
can influence the heavy hitters and the policymaking in Washington, D.C. as well, whether it's senators or congresspeople, to keep uh, CIA doing what it was doing. I mean, you talk about the idea of writing a, a Cold War history. I mean, this is the time period where the real big decisions are being made during the Cold War from 45, about the two decades hmm. at the beginning of the Cold War. And, and certainly, from an intelligence perspective, this is when the CIA was at its peak, certainly during the, during the Eisenhower administration. But from a broader diplomatic history perspective, this is when the, the decisions that would shape the next 40, 50 years of U.S. foreign policy were, were, were discussed and, mm -hmm. and, and, and arrived at. And the interesting thing to me about this book is that this wasn't this big, broad national conversation. These policies were really designed over dinner. Mm -hmm. on Sunday mm -hmm. evenings. You know, Designed and promoted, yeah. and uh, you know, there are stratagems connected with them. You know. and, they, and it turned out that uh, Joe's col uh, Joe and Stewart's column, uh, matter of fact, which ran from the last day of 1945 to the end of, of 1974, was actually a very convenient time regarding the Cold War because it covers the spectrum of events, as you say, from uh, the Truman Doctrine, uh, the Marshall Plan, uh, the creation of NATO, the creation in 1947 of uh, the CIA, and the Alsops, by the way, were advocates of a civilian CIA early on because they did not want the power of J. Edgar Hoover to be extended into foreign lands since he was already in charge of domestic intelligence. So, um, and it, it goes up to um, uh, the Pentagon Papers and then, of course, at Watergate. So that period, 1945, 19, almost 1975, and the end of the war in Vietnam was a, a, a perfect um, era for me to focus upon and, and use uh, Joe Alsop and Stuart Alsop as the foils for the story, right. if you will. This, this actually predates your time period a little bit, but how much actual collaboration or, or at least connection do these people have during the Second World War, during the time before the, the early Cold War when they were coming? I know a lot of them were very prominent members of either the OSS or of Washington Intelligentsia during the Second World War time period. Is this where their relationship began to be fostered? Uh, very much so. Uh, as a matter of fact, these people knew each other, a lot of them knew each other from the war and actually from the OSS, that uh, Stuart Alsop had man, been a member of the famous Jedbergs, which were the three-man commando teams parachuted into occupied France to help the, uh, the partisans. So uh, he, he was already uh, known to Frank Wisner, who was also in the OSS, head of uh, the Romanian uh, operation there. Uh, so it was not, uh, they were so close, in fact, that, that uh, Frank Wisner asked uh, Stuart Alsop to come over as his deputy at uh, the Office of Policy Coordination. But Stu decided he'd rather be a journalist than a spy. So he, uh, he stayed with his brother uh, and, and wrote the column. So a lot of these people, in fact, uh, were, were close friends uh, in the intelligence community and remain friends uh, and actually remain neighbors as well at Georgetown. What, what kind of relationship did this group have with the Dulles brothers during the 50s? Well, again, actually, uh, Frank Wisner had worked for uh, mm -hmm. Alan Dulles, and uh, Alan Dulles uh, lived around the corner from Joe Alsop. Right, no, so, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit incestuous, but uh, they, they all knew each other, and, and in fact, uh, Joe complained, uh, Alan Dulles would be, in, uh, and Alan's, Alan's uh, wife, Clover, would be frequent guests at the Sunday night salons at Joe's house. And, uh, and Joe invited Alan in part, certainly when Alan was a CIA director, to, uh, to try to wheedle some secrets out of him. 
and the story and it f was very frustrating for Joe he said because Alan would begin some story that would uh, have uh, as its punchline some important secret and uh, the story would, would meander along until it got to the point where you got to the interesting part which was the secret and Joe would sort of lean forward and Alan would theatrically look at his watch and say oh goodness how late it is <laughs> who knew Clover and I must leave immediately so uh, so uh, it it was uh, it was kind of a bait and switch I think right. for <laughs> for him. Well, one of the occasional guests at some of these was a, a young, at the time, senator from Massachusetts who would later become president of the United States, and that's certainly talking about Jack Kennedy in this case. Mm -hmm. um, how much influence did this group have on Kennedy when he becomes president later on? Well, Joe Alsop was in fact a, a pretty good friend of, of John Kennedy's early on, and uh, Kennedy moved into the house on N Street right down from uh, Ben Bradley in 1957. Actually, the relationship uh, between Joe and, and John Kennedy went back to, I think, 1946, uh, when Joe was friends with uh, Kathleen Kennedy. But um, they remained friends, and of course, the story that's always told, and I think pretty well known, is that uh, on inauguration night, that uh, after the inaugural ball, that Jackie Kennedy went back to the White House, and John Kennedy went to Joe's house at 2720 Dumbarton, and uh, was a surprise guest, actually. Joe wasn't expecting him, and there's a knock on the door, and there's a cortege of uh, Secret Service cars out in front, and there, standing in front of Joe, is his friend John Kennedy. So he invites Kennedy in, and uh, Kennedy uh, has, the, has the champagne, the, the Dom Perignon, that, that uh, Joe always had in the refrigerator, but uh, he, he passed on the signature dish that Joe had, which was the terrapin soup, which he couldn't stand. What's interesting, of course, is that Kennedy's relationship with the intelligence community didn't go very well, certainly after Bay of Pigs, and, and it, uh, there's a lot of tension during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and, and very famously, Dulles was unceremoniously asked to leave after Actually, Bay of Pigs. <laughs> and, and it wasn't just Dulles. It was several members below him as well. Um, so the... the the relationship couldn't have been saved by these 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 Sunday night dinners, or was it just too broken at that point? No, I, uh, well, Joe wouldn't have had the influence or probably even the interest in trying to, to hold on to Alan Dulles and some of the other people, actually, who worked for Dulles at that time. So Dulles was cashiered, and Frank Wisner, Frank Wisner had actually had a, uh, one or two nervous breakdowns by that time. He was manic-depressive, and he was uh, about the time of the... Uh, Bay of Pigs, he was uh, sent off to London as chief of station just to sort of uh, to have a somewhat easier job than what he'd had before, put less strain on him. So there are letters, for example, between um, oh, uh, Richard Helms and Frank Wisner from this time that, that uh, uh, where Frank is expressing his disappointment and his chagrin that, at the, that our chief, who was Alan Dulles, has now been fired and that uh, things will probably be very different now at the CIA. One, th one thing just to add to that is that uh, uh, Frank Wisner had no compunction about planting stories uh, that, that favored the CIA in Joe Alsop's columns. And in fact, Joe went to uh, a couple of foreign countries, to Laos and to uh, the Philippines, uh, in the case of the Philippines during an election, to promote the uh, CIA favorite candidate, uh, not in his columns that were widely read back here. So, uh, and Joe was later um, asked about this by Carl Bernstein, 
and Joe admitted that he uh, he did services for the CIA and that he was glad to have done that and he thinks he thought that newspaper people uh, actually should work for their own country so he had no apologies to make. Well that's one of the most fascinating things about this book is, is you see this close-knit relationship between the press and the intelligence agency and the foreign policy community as a whole that obviously we don't see anymore and clearly not the case today. Um, and this is, of course, is a time before Watergate, a time before the Church Committee, a time before uh, the press sees it as their their job, in this case, to uh, uncover perhaps bad behavior. Um, this certainly would never be able to happen today. I can't imagine this mm-hmm. as something where the publisher of the Washington Post, which I guess is Jeff Bezos now, sitting down uh, with the CIA director, even you know the head of the Department of Operations or something at CIA, uh, and, and having this kind of a conversation. There's just not that level of trust, number one, but also uh, it's hard to look at a so-called free press that has these close ties to the government. Right, right. Well, uh, uh, Joe Alsop said that there there was and there should be, in fact, always a constant tension. I think, in fact, he called it a war between uh, the press and the intelligence services. But in my book, I say that this was a war in which Joe Alsop declared a separate peace, <laughs> that uh, he was actually quite close to, the to, as I say, the CIA. Uh, but it, it had to do also with, as you say, his type of uh, journalism, that he believed in what we would now call elite or access journalism, which is where your your source on the individual you're reporting on is the individual himself or herself. So that uh, one reason that Joe completely missed Watergate is that his sources were uh, on that story were Henry Kissinger and yeah. Richard Nixon, <laughs> so and who were not telling him the truth about right. what really went on there. So he completely, for more than a year, he uh, he missed the importance of Watergate, uh, and even tried to get Kay Graham to uh, stop taking the Washington Post down a dead end road, as he said. Um, so, uh, in, in, in fact, actually, what really happened, of course, in, in, at that time, and the story of Watergate is a story not of access or elite journalism, but of investigative reporting mm-hmm. by uh, Bernstein and Woodward. And it's a totally different approach than right. what Joe had been used to and, in fact, became the new, uh, the new normal for journalism. Um, my own feeling is that it probably has gone too far the other direction, that every reporter now believes that his or her story is really Watergate and that they need right. to find a case of malfeasance, uh, where in fact it may be just simply incompetence or uh, absent-mindedness, that's the, uh, the culprit. Yeah, well, you see the extremes on every side, and I think that's a segue into what I was gonna ask you next, actually, about what I knew, certainly from studying diplomatic history during this time period, but what is certainly reinforced in this book is the idea of a, a strong political consensus about the direction of U.S. foreign policy, about the idea that just about everyone was thinking along the same. That there's very little space, very little polarization in the American political system. I mean, even the even the Kennedys and the liberals are Cold War liberals. They're they're hawks. They're strongly anti-communist. They're agreeing with their Republican counterparts and, and in most senses about how to carry out the Cold War. Uh, certainly, the polarization of Washington is far less pronounced than it is today. Uh, and, and, and to a degree, that allows for uh, some kind of the coordination and cooperation that takes place during this time. I mean, even people like uh, Paul Nietzsche and George Kennan, who would not be anywhere near each other on the political spectrum. Of course, Kennan's a very, very liberal and Nietzsche is very much on the other side, are working hand in hand on a common goal. And, and, and so is this something that you see uh, as a, a reason that 
people from different fields, whether it's journalism or intelligence or foreign policy or national security, can feel as though they can come together and have this joint discussion about the future of the United States. Right. I think it was essentially unspoken that there was a degree of trust and, and confidence between these people because they had had a, the shared experience of the Second World War. And, uh, and in the Cold War, the, the shared belief in an anti-communist consensus. And uh, so that uh, as you, these, uh, I think this sort of um, union of thought was just unquestioned. That, uh, that even, in, and, and you mentioned uh, Kennan and Nitza, that Kennan and Nitza were both uh, frequent guests at Joe Alsop's table. I'm not sure on the same evening, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect not. But uh, they were both guests and they were both sources for Joe's reporting. Um, so, um, so I, I think that there was a degree of, uh, well, not common, common thinking, or at least the same thinking that existed with that gener that greatest generation. That certainly is not at all uh, evident today. Uh, center, as you mentioned, to your book is Joe Alsop, and and there is a uh, a scandal involving Joe Alsop that involves foreign intelligence, and um, it may, you know, we assume it's well known, but it may not be fully understood by. A lot of people listening today, certainly people of a younger generation, have never heard of the scandal involving Alsop. Can you talk us through a little bit the background behind this scandal? Sure. Joe had always wanted to go to the Soviet Union uh, and be in what he called the belly of the beast uh, and report from Moscow. So in 1950, early 1957, he goes to Moscow. And while he's there, he basically is ensnared in a uh, homosexual honey trap. And uh, he's uh, staying at the Grand Hotel, he's approached by a man he describes as blonde, young, youngish, athletic, and uh, this man is called Boris, and Boris basically seduces uh, Alsop, and after what the, uh, the Russian document will call uh, the act, uh, two men uh, burst into their, their room and confront Alsop and, say, and show him pictures of uh, he and Boris naked and say they now have evidence that will ruin his career and uh, he had better cooperate with them for the cause of peace. Uh, Alsop wasn't sure what to do, uh, but he, in fact, actually he said he, and he later uh, thought he might have to commit suicide because his career would now be ruined. But instead he decided to play out the game to see where it would lead, as he later wrote. And um, he, but he contacts his friend, who was Chip Bolin, Charles Bolin, former Georgetown neighbor, uh, who is now the uh, American ambassador to the Soviet Union. Uh, he, uh, Bo uh, Bolin finds out a little bit about what had happened. Bolin contacts his friend and Joe's friend, Frank Wisner, who is now head of the plans directorate at CIA. And Wisner tells Bolin that you have to get Joe, uh, Joe at this time had, had gone to Leningrad, you have to get Joe back to Moscow. Joe has to write an exact detailed account of what happened with Boris, and you need to send that to me, and I will give it to Alan Dulles, and Alan Dulles will give it to J. Edgar Hoover. And once the CIA and the FBI know about this, and Joe has been open and frank, that uh, there will not be any, ba any uh, basis for blackmail, that this will pull the sting from the KGB right. blackmail threat. And that's exactly what Joe does. He actually writes an eight-and-a-half single-spaced uh, account um, Eight and a half page single space account of the uh, of what is called the Moscow incident, and um, and I actually FOIAed the documents uh, from CIA and, and have the letter that uh, Alan Dulles wrote to J Edgar Hoover, in, in, including the uh, uh, what was what he called uh, Joe Alsop's confession mm -hmm. of what had happened, and uh, it was stamped uh, top secret eyes only. It was meant to be kept as the very top secret. In fact, actually. 
Alan Dulles asked Hoover to keep it uh, in a special safe and not allow access to, uh, to it from anybody. Uh, and the secret was actually kept despite the fact that uh, there were subsequent attempts to blackmail um, Joe Alsop from the KGB and actually I think from the, uh, the, uh, from, um, the FBI, mm. from Hoover himself. And potentially from the Soviet ambassador at some point, Dobrynin? Well, there's always been, well, what happened is this, the incident occurred in 1957. The secret is pretty well kept. It actually doesn't come out fully until after Joe's death, and about five years after his death, he died in 1989. But um, in 1970, the photographs that have been taken back then started appearing in the mailboxes of Joe's enemies and some of his friends, actually, in Washington. So the, the question in my uh, research question I had was, uh, first off, who received the, the photographs and uh, who had sent them? The photographs were, uh, there was a letter in, included with the photographs that basically was, was unsigned. Uh, this was, in, again, in 1970, and, it, and it's, the letter said, in effect, uh, you'll see from these photographs what a despicable person Joe Alsop is. You should know that he was... Um, these photographs were taken by Israeli intelligence, by the Mossad, and the reason that Joe Alsop is so favorable to, to Israel is because of this blackmail threat. Uh, if you look at the timing, Joe had just written a column, several columns critical of Soviet policy in the Middle East, and one column that was a personal attack upon the Soviet ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Dobrynin. And my own conclusion is that, um, and I knew that Dobrynin knew about the Moscow incident because of a conversation that was recorded he had with Henry Kissinger. So my own conclusion is that uh, Dobrynin is the most likely source for having sent these uh, these photographs around with an intent to basically tell Joe, uh, knock it off and uh, don't, don't do this, <laughs> don't, don't criticize me directly. Uh, Joe would continue to be very anti-Soviet in his columns, but he would not be anti uh, uh, Dobrynin. And <laughs> the other part of the story is that uh, uh, Richard Helms, who was then CIA director, uh, also knew about the photographs. And uh, friends with Joe went to Helms. And Helms, uh, in his memoir, says that he then approached the KGB and said, uh, knock it off. If you send, uh, if these pictures keep on going around, we have, um, we have ways of letting uh, the world know about what some KGB agents have done that they would not want exposed. And, and also, like most people who fall for honey traps, uh, in hindsight, probably should have seen it coming. Uh, from every description I've heard of, of Alsop and, and some of the pictures that I've seen, he wasn't a stunner. Um, and, you know, it, it's always the, the, the 60-year-old balding middle-aged heavyweight guy who uh, runs into the 19-year-old Russian gymnast and thinks he's his lucky day. Uh, and it just turns out to be a KGB agent. Um, it what, seems what like surprise. the all Boris uh, <laughs> rendezvous probably should have been seen coming a mile away. Yeah, and Joe, Joe actually admitted that. In fact, the, uh, the first line of his so-called confession is that this is the story of a, uh, of a dreadful mistake, or words to that effect. Well, absolutely fascinating book. It just came out. Um, you can pick it up anywhere great books are sold, including the, the uh, Spy Museum uh, gift shop, the retail store. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.
listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. <laughs> 